The Romanovs were the last of the Russian dynasties, and for decades, they were one of the most powerful families in the world. Yet they will forever be known for their blood-curdling end. Over a hundred years ago, on July 17, 1918, Tsar Nicholas II, his wife Alexandra, and their children were executed by Bolshevik forces. This is their road to perdition. Hello and welcome to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factinate.com. I'm Veronica. I'm Dancy. And this series usually has one goal, to make history fun. Because usually it turns out that when you take away the old words and the fancy titles, anyone who made history was probably a bit of a hot mess. But as you might have guessed from our new topic and Dancy's intro, this is season two. And we're taking a bit of a turn away from the fun and into the haunting, the compelling, and the tragic. Because guys, we're talking about historical true crime. Mm-hmm. So buckle up as we tell you the story of the Romanovs. And the Romanovs are obviously so infamous. And everybody knows how they died and everybody knows Anastasia. But I think we really are going to get into the context and the circumstances surrounding their death, the the moments of their of their execution and also most interestingly for me like what that all means. What does it all mean? <laughs> when you think about the intersection of history and true crime, they just have this like decaying royal glamour and they have such a tragic end and it is an execution but it feels like an assassination. Mm-hmm. An entire family wiped out in their own home like They were not put in prison. There was no ceremony. It surprised them. And I think that's why, even though there's so many executed leaders, the Romanovs just hit different, you know? All right. So let's get to know the Romanovs first. Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, who was born Princess Alex of Hesse, but otherwise known as Tsarina Alexandra Fedorovna, they had a bit of a Romeo and Juliet story, actually, which is um, fitting, maybe given their end. They were a love match. Um, They were actually both first cousins to King George V of England, but their families still did not like each other and didn't want them to marry. There were a lot of anti-Russian sentiments in Alexandra's German family and vice versa. The Russians also had anti-German tendencies. More than that, though, Nicholas's family thought or suspected that Alexandra, who was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, was a carrier for the often fatal genetic disorder hemophilia, which manifests most intensely in males and disrupts blood clotting. If you listen to our previous season, we actually talk about this with Queen Victoria, but the Russian family were kind of like, oh, Queen Victoria had it. She's Queen Victoria's granddaughter. Maybe she's a carrier for this hemophilia thing that we, we don't want anything to do with. Especially because it impacts boys and royal families love a male heir. And uh, just put a pin in that. (laughs) We will get to that suspicion (laughs) a little later. Uh, Anyway, Alexandra and Nicholas defy their families and marry anyway. And they have five children together. Um, They have four girls and then the youngest was a boy. So there's Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and the boy's name was Alexei. And the girls all signed their stuff Atma. That was like their collective um, signature together. Like O-T-M-A for the first letter of each of their names. Almost like... um a pop group from the 90s. (laughs) So just to give a little bit of information on each of the children. So Olga was the oldest. And along with Tatiana, the second oldest, they were called the big pair. Olga was a bit, a bit queenly, 
uh, a bit delicate. She's also a bit of a homebody. She swore she didn't want to marry anyone foreign and leave Russia. Tatiana was the type A one. They all gave nicknames to each other. And Tatiana was called the governess. She also looked a lot like her mom. And this gave her some pull over Tsar Nicholas. So when the children did something wrong or wanted something from their parents, they always made Tatiana go ask their dad because <laughs> he had the soft spot for. <laughs> There's always one in the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maria, the third oldest daughter, she was along with Anastasia called the little pair. And Maria is generally considered the prettiest. She had these huge eyes that they called Marie's saucers. Um, she was very angelic looking. And she was also pretty biddable, wanted to please everybody. She's a people pleaser. And her family, this is like such a family nickname, like a shithead nickname. They called her the fat little bow wow because she always <laughs> did whatever they wanted, like a little dog. I'm sorry, that's just Bat Joe meets Little Bow Wow. So <laughs> Maria is the um, budding rapper of the family. Yes, yeah, for sure. And then Anastasia, who probably needs little introduction, was the youngest of the girls. She was the trickster. Her nickname was The Imp. And she never wanted to do schoolwork, just like kind of a tomboy. She would actually climb up trees to avoid doing homework and people would be like, Anastasia, calm down. <laughs> yeah um her, her cousin her cousin once called her quote nasty to the point of being evil <laughs> so she great burn yeah she could be she could be a little shit i think <laughs> and then yeah finally finally um after long long years of wanting that male heir czar nicholas and alexandra finally had their youngest child their son alexi who was the baby of the family he was obviously very spoiled um he was really obsessed in the way a lot of young boys are with soldiers he wanted to do whatever soldiers do to eat what soldiers ate he really looked up to his father and all five of the children were extremely sheltered and i think that you know i'm gonna i say that and you're gonna hear okay they were rich and sheltered like no 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 like, most of the public didn't even know what these children looked like. Like, they'd never seen them. They were kept sort of away from the public eye. A little oddly, um, although we often think about the Romanovs living in luxury, and certainly some of them did, and they had massive amounts of money, um, Nicholas and Alexandria didn't want their children they didn't want them to grow up spoiled even though of course they were mm. going to grow up spoiled but they made them sleep on cots and take cold baths and they wore hand-me-downs you know when they weren't attending balls in all of their finery so a very strange dichotomous existence so like not royally sheltered like homeschool sheltered. yeah the weird homeschool kids <laughs> that's kind of the vibe i'm sorry to all homeschool kids but um my best friend is homeschooled and they will admit that it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Hi, Charlie, if you're listening. <laughs> so this is the family setup. And again, a little bit strange, but there's something else going on in the Russian royal family and something is rotten in the state of Russia. Surprise, guys. Alexandra was a carrier for hemophilia and she passed it down to her son, Alexei. But even though the inner circle of the palace knew that Alexei had hemophilia, it, was, it becomes very obvious. It was a complete state secret at the time. Like no one who didn't need to know knew that Alexei had hemophilia, that the only heir to the Russian throne was in an extremely fragile state of health. 
Mm-hmm. Here's where we get into some familiar terrain for many people, because this is this is kind of where we kick off the infamous part of the Romanoff's existence, and, and Veronica will take this up. So Alexei is super sickly and delicate. So Alexandra turns to a little known in history, totally forgotten, a holy man named Rasputin to heal him. Weirdly enough, there's some coincidences where it seems like Rasputin's actually is helping Alexei. There's sort of a, a one really, really big accident that happens. Rasputin gives advice to Alexandra and it sort of ends up working out and Alexei gets better. And, and kind of from then on, he's just like, his word is gold in the kingdom. But he really just got lucky, right? Well, I mean, I think so. The, the, I mean, <laughs> he was known as a bit of a weirdo, like in the village he grew up in. People thought he could like talk to horses. Like he definitely cultivated and big emphasis on cult (laughs) cultivated like an image of himself (laughs) as like a mystic so yeah i think he just got lucky but a lot of people back then were certain that he was you know from his mouth to god and he gained more and more influence over alexandra people even began to whisper that they were having an affair they probably didn't (laughs) but rasputin did have like a cult of little ladies they were called who would wait outside his apartments to see him again veronica will get into this a little bit more Will I ever. (laughs) This man is the epitome of dirty hot, and I will go deep into that, but for now. A lot is reported, obviously, on Alexandra and Rasputin's relationship and Rasputin's relationship to Alexei, but, like, the whole family actually was in this toxic, codependent situation with him, excepting possibly Nicholas. Yeah, they were kind of obsessed with him as a family. Yeah. Rasputin called the Tsar and Tsarina Mama and Papa. Kinky. The children wore amulets containing his picture. Anastasia called him her only true friend. And like he would often be found in the girls like private rooms, like when they were just in their nightgowns, just weird ass stuff. Great. Not a fan of that last part. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Rasputin is 100% a factor in the Russian Revolution in the downfall of the Romanovs. But I Mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. think sometimes a little too much pressure is placed on him. Like, I think of the movie Anastasia, which, by the way, fucking great movie. It slaps. (laughs) It's literally just like, (laughs) yes, the Romanovs fell because Rasputin and black magic. He he cast a black magic spell on on Russia. And then the peasants got mad. It's like. Yeah, that simplifies things. Great. (laughs) You don't have to talk about class struggle and you can just put it all on one guy. It makes it a lot more like less messy as a a narrative. But the truth was, of (laughs) course, he's the tinder to this this dry crumbling haystack. The (laughs) Russian people are already dealing with huge amount of poverty huge amount of structural inequality and like they're just they're just starving and and horrible and during this time a lot of monarchies are becoming more constitutional monarchies but nicholas was very much like no i want an absolute monarchy i'm the absolute ruler like fuck you fuck you fuck you fuck you like no under my shoe thank you you will stay there and so this is really the foundation for the fall and for the fragility of the romanov dynasty right now and then rasputin comes in and really like makes those cracks obvious and then as that's all going on world war one starts starts rumbling and good god it gets 10 times worse yeah it ain't great (laughs) 
So you see into this, as Dancy very well put it, this dry pile of hay just (laughs) waiting to be lit on fire. We have the fact that A, Russia's pretty unhappy because their rulers are not changing with the times and they're starving. B, there's a freaky guy in the (laughs) Russian court and we don't trust him. C, it's World War One, which is bad for everyone. And D, Mama Romanov was a German. And this meant that all the baby Romanovs were half German. And during World War One, you know who was not popular? Germans. <laughs> so it's just not a great situation. At this time, two of the sisters, Olga and Tatiana, tried to do their part. As we said, they were raised to be a little unorthodox. Uh, they became nurses, as did their mom. Nicholas, however, was a staunch authoritarian. He was not so helpful with the war effort. And Rasputin did not help this. Rasputin was a mystic, and he had a vision that Russia would only succeed in the war if Nicholas personally took control of the army. So Nicholas did. But did Nicholas have any experience with leading an army? Mm, Gonna guess no. (laughs) No, no, he did not. So this went as badly as you would expect. Nicholas's leadership, and I'm putting that in air quotes because I think we can agree that that's not what this was, but him taking power doomed Russia to devastating death tolls and losses on the battlefield. You know, the Germans, they were experienced in battle and they were outfitted with these advanced weapons. And even though Russia had like twice as many men, they were so inexperienced that the battle became just a bloodbath. It was both humiliating and devastating for Russia. Also, you know, Russia had all these men because they had conscripted lots of citizens from rural farming villages. And that meant that this death toll on the battlefield had these repercussions across the whole country because these farming villages were losing their laborers, which was meaning that there were food shortages, which meant that food prices were skyrocketing. So all of this meant that people were starving across the country. And Nicholas became justifiably very unpopular. (laughs) Like, yeah, you made your own bed, buddy. Choice nicknames included Vile Nicholas, Nicholas the Hangman, and Bloody Nicholas. Oh, these are all so metal. They really are. All this sets the stage for two big events. First, in 1916, the demise of the Russian royal family's number one weird friend, Rasputin. And in 1917, Nicholas's abdication from the throne. Big stuff, guys. Oh, yeah. And oh, my God. It's a wild ride to get there. Yeah. So let's start with Rasputin first. Um, What to say about this man? A gross man. Once, quote unquote, bragged about not changing his underwear for over six months. (laughs) You gotta take the wins where you can get them, you know? (laughs) Is that a win? I mean, I will say this is a win. He somehow made this hot for some people. Like, women were obsessed with Rasputin. They followed him around and basically worshipped him. There was also a lot of fascination with his sexual life. Like, he would lick his fingers and then give them to noble women to lick at banquets. But let's be real. What you really want to know about is Rasputin's death. A group of seven aristocrats got together, agreed that they all hated how much influence Rasputin had over the royal family, and decided to assassinate him. 
famously, this did not go well. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to give you the greatest hits. So first, they poison Rasputin. The poison somehow has no effect. Then these guys shoot Rasputin in the back. He collapses. But then plot twist, he gets up and charges at these people <laughs> while smiling, apparently. And then he like runs up the stairs after fighting with them. So they shoot him in the head and the back. So that's three gunshots just to keep you up to date. And then at this point, justifiably, they're like, all right, we got to do a little extra. So they just beat Rasputin's unconscious body. <laughs> but he's somehow still alive. Oh, so- my God. They tie him up, they wrap him in cloth, and they dump his body in the freezing Neva River. And they assume, like, oh, my God, that's got to be it. And it is it, kind of. Eventually, his body washes up, and it is dead. But when they give his body an autopsy, they see that there is cold water in his lungs, and he has wounds on his hands that they are like, these look like this motherfucker was clawing at the ice, which means he was alive when they dumped him. So he survived poison, a beating, and three gunshots. I feel like when you asked me earlier on if, like, he really, it was a coincidence or miracle for him to heal Alexi, that's kind of what gave me pause, where I'm like, (laughs) no, no, it's just coincidence, but But then, like, this is all confirmed stuff. Like, this is not legend. This is actually what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's insane. Like, what? It shouldn't be possible. So, yeah, I guess I asked. I was like, haha, yeah, gotta be just lucky. Man, maybe not. (laughs) I do not know what Rasputin was microdosing, but... (laughs) I don't know, guys. UFOs are real now. (laughs) They're an actual thing. So maybe Rasputin is a holy man. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god and the best part comes decades later so this guy buys a storage locker owned by Rasputin's daughter and he finds a glass jar filled with Rasputin's preserved and insanely large dong and this causes an absolute sensation and eventually people learn that actually this is just a pickled sea cucumber but even so (laughs) Rumors of Rasputin's absolutely enormous equipment persist to this day. Enormous and like also mystical. Like it was like a fertility uh, token talisman. Yes, there was like a mini cult that was really into this dong. Oh, goodness. So that's Rasputin. He's gone. Is he though? Is he gone? (laughs) Well, hey, maybe he's not. I mean, his dong will rise again. (laughs) Um, Either way, the people are not satisfied with this. In 1917, Russia, I think reasonably, starts revolting. In March, a group of rebels storm St. Petersburg. Nicholas, again, his credentials for leading a country, I'm not convinced. Mm. Instead of calming the crowd, he orders his men to shoot his own citizens. Oh, and dear. his men are like, mm, no, nope. You know, we've seen enough. We refuse. Not today, Satan. Not today. They fire their weapons into the air. And then I think the inevitable happens. And they're like, why are we being told to shoot the citizens? Yep. Let's shoot this guy. So they turn on <laughs> Nicholas. And uh, within 24 hours, 60,000 of Nicholas's own guards mutinied against him. Uh, they form a provisional government and demand that Nicholas give up the throne. At this point, he has no choice but to do as they say. And on March 5th, 1917, the Romanovs' uninterrupted 300-year rule comes to 
a very disgraceful end. So now we get into the denouement, the the downfall, the big climax of the whole the, thing. The scene has been set, the chaos has ensued, and now it's all payoff. <laughs> yeah. So after his abdication in March 1917, the plan for the Romanov family was exile. The provisional government and the Romanovs both wanted that. And he was supposed to go to England. Um, King George V was supposed to take them in. Obviously, they were family. Uh, and he'd actually agreed to it, uh, George had, until he rescinded his offer. England was too worried it would spark insurgents on their own land. They were already having trouble with Ireland and Irish independence. Um, so they were like, um, actually, <laughs> no. And no one else stepped up to the plate. And with no way to put them into like an exile, like a safe exile, thus began a long imprisonment for the Romanovs. They um, traveled around to several different locations under house arrest. In the meantime, while that's happening, the provisional government gets overtaken by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. So the provisional government is kind of a middle of the road centrist. Like the Bolsheviks are like, revolution. Like we're not fucking, we don't want these people. Um, <laughs> Not good news for the Romanovs. Nicholas at this time is like, he's kind of aware um, of what's going on, but he's really underestimating Lenin and underestimating the revolutionary. Still, somehow, still. Yeah, dude, what more do they have to do? They dethroned you. Don't underestimate yeah. them. That sign can't stop me because I can't read. So during this time, like the Romanovs are, they're getting kind of free reign of the ho various houses they're staying in. They're playing games. They have servants. They are friendly with their guards. But once the Bolsheviks take power, things get much more restrictive, much more tense. A real sense of doom settles in. Uh, the guards cut down on the hours that the family's allowed outside. They don't even let them walk to church and they have to give up most of the servants that were with them. Around this time, all the girls got, they got measles. So all the girls started to lose their hair and they ended up shaving their heads. Um, they were really a far cry from the rulers that they used to look like. Mm -hmm. Even so, they're still waiting for someone to come save them, either another country to intervene or maybe a plot to come and free them, but no help is coming. Then they're moved one more time, the last time, to the Ipatiev house, which the Bolsheviks ominously named the House of Special Purpose. Oh, it's so vague, but so foreboding. Yeah. And even at this point, though, the intention here is to bring Nicholas to a trial. Maybe be a show trial, but, but still, they want to, in front of the people, bring him to a trial. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. There's a horrific twist of fate. And it's one of those things, like, when you talk about, okay, why did they get executed? Why weren't they exiled? Why wasn't there some kind of trial? Like, what happened? It kind of comes down to just bad luck. Around this time, there's a revolt of the Czechoslovak Legion, which it's basically a civil war in Russia against the Bolsheviks. Because again, people are still jockeying for power. Everything is still new. Mm -hmm. And the new government's really unsteady on its feet. But this Czechoslovak Legion, the Bolsheviks are so worried about them. Uh, and they're actually marching towards Moscow. So in order to protect themselves, the Bolsheviks decide to, and excuse my flippant language here, liquidate their assets. That's what they're thinking. They don't want to have any bargaining chips that can be taken away from them. 
So basically, the Bolsheviks are looking to really clamp down their kind of tenuous claim on this new power. And they're just looking around at all these different nobles and aristocrats and seeing, okay, if someone decides they want to take us down, they could use these royal families as their figureheads, and then we'd really be in trouble. So the idea is the Romanovs have gone from like an annoyance to a liability, and it would be best Mm -hmm. for their new reign to wipe these people out. Right. And soon. The sooner the better, because again, they're only going to be in more hot water as time goes on. So they've got to get the Romanovs gone now. So early in the morning of July 17th in 1918, the Romanovs are brought down into the basement of the Ipatiev house to face a firing squad. And the men were supposed to each fire at a different family member, but many of them privately didn't want to shoot the girls, obviously, or any of the children, really. So they all aimed at Nicholas and Alexandra instead. And sadly for both the Romanovs and the soldiers, the execution went like horrifically wrong. In the months leading up to the execution, Alexander had the children so uh, valuable um, jewels and kind of ready-made like money they could use into this like specially made underwear just in case they could ever escape and and they could possibly use it to gain passage or barter or, or something like that. So on the night of the execution, the children were all wearing this special underwear and these jewels acted like bulletproof vests for them. So the bullets that the firing squad shot at them bounced off of their clothing and they only wounded, they didn't kill the children. So the smoke clears after this firing squad shoots and the soldiers discover that the children aren't dead and they had to kill them all over again with bayonets. And this time they succeeded. Jesus Christ. Just a horrific way to go, a horrific order to carry out, just all around, like, extremely tragic. So, yes, the Romanovs were absolutely wiped out. And in the years after their execution, murder, uh, I mean, I think both terms are applicable, Mm -hmm. the family gained this glamorous, almost doomed appeal. There was this tragic interest in the Romanovs and their demise, and especially in one of their daughters. Princess Anastasia was rumored to have survived, and these rumors basically just became legends in the following decades. Many women actually came forward claiming to be the lost Princess Anastasia, Mm -hmm. but only one truly made an impact on the popular consciousness. And what a story. In the early 1920s, a woman tried to complete suicide by jumping into a river. The authorities pulled her out and took her to a hospital. And when she came to consciousness, she said, I'm Anastasia. I'm the lost Mm -hmm, princess. mm -hmm. She said a guard had helped her escape from the execution. And here's really the thing that convinced people. She looked just like Anastasia and even had the same Mm -hmm, mannerisms mm -hmm. as Anastasia. So this caused quite a sensation in the press. But Anastasia's actual family, they were not convinced. Her old tutor and her Aunt Olga both said the woman was an imposter. And for a long time, we didn't know what had happened. But in 1994, Tess compared this woman's DNA against some of Anastasia's relatives and concluded that there was no relation. Mm -hmm. The imposter's name was Anna Anderson, and it turned out that she was a mentally ill Polish factory worker. Now... 
all this hasn't stopped people from wanting to find the real Anastasia, should she be somewhere. Mm -hmm. Most notable to us, I believe, is the animated movie Anastasia starring John Cusack as Dimitri. Oh, my first crush. One of my first crushes. The hottest of the animated love interests, except for Robin Hood. Mufasa. And Meg from Hercules. (laughs) There's some animated hotties out there. Oh, uh, Roxanne from a Goofy movie? Oh, God. Yeah, no, she's top tier. Um, Yeah, I I think this fascination with Anastasia, it's this desire to kind of rewrite that history, you know? Yes. Like if you could just save one of them. One of the things that makes this particular political assassination stand out is the children. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to swallow five innocent kids. And so, Yeah. yeah, if you can just save one of them. Yeah, it's such a reasonable and understandable reaction for people to have this desperate Mm -hmm. sense that they just want to rewrite this one part of history. Yeah. I mean, lesser known, though, on a lighter note, is that there was also an imposter of Alexei, the boy, a Polish CIA spy pretended to be him for his entire life, despite being like 20 years younger than (laughs) Alexei should have been. He was like, nope, it's fine. (laughs) The balls you have to have to do that. Like, what? What? (laughs) <laughs> say it's 20 years too soon say it to my face <laughs> like you do you guy i don't know <laughs> elaborate role play and um here's a weird footnote to all of this the family was canonized by the russian orthodox church in 1981 so yeah the romanovs are saints <laughs> i mean for the kids sure but nicholas i'm gonna call time on that <laughs> Yeah, I just love, it's like rushing me like, sorry, guys. Sorry, 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 guys. <laughs> no, 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 no. He is not a saint. <laughs> and here's another strange footnote. Um, Sometimes I get really stunned and perturbed by how recent some of the historical stuff we talk about is. Not all of it, but this one. Like, did you know that we only found the remains of the family members in 1991? Wow. Um, We found some of the remains in a mass grave, and then they found the remains, and one of the remains they now believe is Anastasia, in a nearby grave, and they found that only in 2007. Yeah. This is recent. These are recent discoveries. So that really kind of messed with my idea of history, because you think of the Romanovs, and you situate them so long ago, but it took a very long time for this story to come to a close. Mm -hmm. And yet, to the point of this being recent, like, I do think... They really are one of those fault lines between a kind of old world and a new modern world. And I don't actually like placing a mm. lot of fault lines like that. Like, Yeah, like history is never as simple as there was a before and there was an after, right? Exactly, exactly. But obviously the Russian Revolution is one of the monumental moments of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And we're just not that far from it yet. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even just thinking about uh, how modern this is and, and how it still has so much to bear on our, our own current moment, like my relationship to the Romanovs, but also specifically the Romanov execution is so complicated. It's like, how do we talk about this as a crime? Yes. Um, is it reducible to that? It's certainly not the person on person crime that much true crime is, where again, you have a victim and a perpetrator. Um is I think like is all fair and want love and war like is what the Bolsheviks did does the means justify the mm-hmm. end does the end justify the means yeah what did the Romanovs stand for like what was gained with their execution what was lost I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me because I think the Romanovs are a really interesting case for the question of what counts as true crime mm-hmm. 
I think for a lot of people, you think the Romanovs plus true crime equals, oh, the Romanovs are the victims. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, clearly, yes, they got murdered. That's not great. They did die pretty intensely. (laughs) They did die a violent death. (laughs) But when you look into it, what Nicholas did, in my opinion, it is criminal. He is responsible for the deaths of so many young men. And that is a crime, too. Like being an incompetent ruler so that your country is plagued into misery and starvation. That's criminal. And I think that this kind of gets to one of my overarching concerns that I think we'll get to talk about in this season, which is true crime's tendency to focus on these very, very specific instances Mm -hmm. of person A killed person B because they were cheating on them with person C. Like, there's just a very small cast of characters, and they're often divorced from social and political contexts. And I think true crime probably hones in on these cases, A, because they're very digestible, they're easy to discuss, there's not a lot of background you need. But there's also this insidious underbelly where focusing on the hyper-specific and the personal over the political and the social, Mm -hmm. it gives harder to pin down crimes an easy way out. Things like corporate crime, like all those banks that got away scot-free after destroying lives in the housing crisis. Um, Things like political regimes and tyrannical rulers like Nicholas, but also there are so many despots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you'll never see that covered on a podcast. That's just not what they talk about, even though that is true crime. And I think that's very dodgy to me. So I'm very interested for the season on true crime from a historical perspective. I think it'll broaden our idea of what true crime is. Also, I mean, I do love the true crime genre and I I feel a little less icky about liking it because I'm now getting <laughs> yes, my spooky yes. thrills from stories where everyone involved is long dead and gone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think talking about the context of true crime, it's also easier when it's historical because we have a more distanced perspective on that context. Mm-hmm. And not that all the ones we talk about will be, um, some of them will be more hyper-personal than others, but it offers us the opportunity to allow context to play more of a role than it does in traditional true crime where it's a narrative that might make you feel unsafe and then safe at the end. Or, you know, like where things get resolved, fixed, figured out, mm-hmm. the murders pinned down, et cetera, et cetera. I think that what context does is complicates the the scenery. And I think that that can be just as interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super pumped for this season. I hope our listeners are too. Oh, man. Got some of my favorite things to talk about ever in this season. I know. Sounds so creepy <laughs> and bad. <laughs> oh, I'm so pumped. I'm I really uh, am pumped. Yes, and maybe we'll maybe we'll psychoanalyze ourselves during this too. Like, why the heck are we like this? Are we okay? <laughs> but I am what I am. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factnate.com. If you want to learn more about the Romanovs, check out our article on them. The link is in the show notes. If you want to see Veronica's dumb history memes on social media, give us a follow on Instagram uh, at Yesterday's News Podcast, on Twitter, which is at Factnate Pod, and Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash Yesterday's News Pod. We'll be back next week with another historical crime to dissect. Until then, don't let the bland textbooks fool you. History was a damn soap opera. And a damn true crime documentary, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. <laughs>